In these unprecedented times, we need effective immune support. That's why I'm excited to introduce two formulas that work, CV Defense and CV Acute. There's nothing quite like them. CV Defense is a daily preventative. The only supplement that delivers the six most important ingredients to optimize your immune function, including PEA, a critical molecule for long-term immunity at the cellular level. CV Acute is a fast-acting, great-tasting syrup for direct immune activation. It eliminates invaders with a fruit flower and root of patented Chinese medicine. I take it when I feel run down to fend off respiratory infections. Both products are safe, all-natural, and backed by numerous clinical trials. For more information and to order, go to TotalImmuneHealth.com and take advantage of discounts from 30 to 50% just for listening to Intelligent Medicine. That's TotalImmuneHealth.com. TotalImmuneHealth.com for the most exciting immune support products in years. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And today we're going to interview one of the co-authors of, well, frankly, a book that I wish I'd written because it is brilliant. The concept behind this is great. The book is entitled, Am I Dying? And the tagline is, should you call, I'm sorry, should you chill out or freak out? A complete guide to your symptoms and what to do next. And uh, it's by a couple of physicians at uh, Columbia, Columbia. Christopher Kelly and Mark Eisenberg. Uh, Chris is with us on our conference line. He's a senior clinical fellow at Columbia University uh, Irving Medical Center. Uh, he served as intern resident and chief resident at Columbia University Irving, Irving Medical Center. Uh, when did Chris? When did they add the Irving Medical Center? You know, it used to be Columbia University, Medi- but now Irving is. Yeah. it's like so. Um- First of all, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure, My pleasure. speaking with you. And um, the Irving was a recent addition. Um, uh, Mr. Herbert Irving has been a great benefactor of Columbia University Medical Center for many years. And uh, in recognition of all of that, they decided to just name the entire medical center after him. It used to, used to be called Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, but I, I, yeah. it converted to Irving. <laughs> okay. We uh, we like to freshen things up every few years. Just change the name of the hospital completely. Well, great. So great concept uh, for the book. You know, how how did you get Thank the you. idea? It, it it really is. You know, certainly this is a, a dilemma because a doctor's yeah. role is to reassure and provide patients with a reality check, and yep. many patients these days uh, catastrophize. And I think what's made that worse is the advent of uh, the internet. Uh, you know, I, I've said. Uh, frequently that the art of aging is is to balance between what I term constructive denial and eh, don't worry about it it's going to go away it's no big problem uh, but also with appropriate vigilance because you can't just dismiss symptoms sometimes it's important to pay attention to them and uh, get uh, medical attention alas uh, people unfortunately opt for only one of those two things uh, complete denial or uh, unchecked vigilance Right. There's there's um, no sweet spot in between. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's very um, binary. So, yeah. So so my co-author Dr. Eisenberg and I we wrote this book uh, for two reasons. Number one, because we found that a lot of the times when people uh, come to see a physician, what they really want is just reassurance. They're experiencing something new. They're a little concerned about it. They don't know if it's a big deal or not. 
um, everyone hears these stories about how, you know, a friend of a friend had a cough for two days and the next day he was dead. And so everyone's concerned that this symptom that they're having could be a story like that. So a lot of what we as doctors do, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, is just, you know, helping people triage things in their head and providing some reassurance and, you know, giving some initial guidance as to whether something needs further evaluation or not. So that was number one. Uh, and number two was the discovery, uh, as you point out, that basically all people at this point before coming to see a doctor will look up their symptoms on the Internet. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, we encourage people to be invested in their health and to be educated about their bodies, and, and we love that people want to understand things better. But unfortunately, the Internet, uh, when it comes to healthcare, like with politics and everything else, um, has a lot of misinformation, uh, disinformation at times. And what we wanted to do was create something that people could trust, uh, a resource that they could turn to without you know, worrying about ulterior motives or whether we're trying to sell anything, we're not, um, and uh, just get unbiased uh, information that a doctor would give you in an office about uh, whatever symptom you might be having so you know what you should do about it. Well, you know, there's this, uh, it's actually a, a clinical diagnosis, I believe now, cyberchondria, uh, which yeah. is a variant on old-fashioned hypochondria. It's sort of like cyberchondria uh, takes it to a new level because it's fostered by the top-down approach that is often taken in symptom checkers when you look stuff yeah. up on the internet. So, for example, you know, if you have a headache, the, the thing that will appear at the top of the rule-out list is uh, a, a, a ruptured uh, cerebral aneurysm, you know, and, yeah. and, and of course at the bottom of the list, you know, when all else, all these other dire possibilities have been exhausted is, eh, it's a tension headache, you know, you need a massage. Yeah, so I love the phrase cyberchondria, um, and I think that it does not just mean that people who have always been worried about their health in the past and might 25 years ago have been labeled hypochondriacs or just in a brave new online world. I think that cyberchondria afflicts most people, and as you say, it does that because the Internet, as it's laid out, is just not a great place for nuance. <laughs> um, and when you look up any symptom, it usually begins with the worst case scenario. Uh, because, you know, the website that you're reading, it doesn't really know anything about you except that you're having a headache. So it feels like it should warn you right away that mm -hmm. yeah. a headache could be a sign of something horrific. Mm -hmm. And in our book, we sort of try to take a slightly more cool-headed approach. So we, we flip the order. So we start with, you know, for example, the headaches that you don't really need to worry about and slowly work our way up to the ones that you do mm -hmm. need to worry about. And we try to, for every single symptom covered in the book, and there's about 40 of them, try to lay out sort of every possible sort of flavor of that symptom that we encounter as doctors and try to lead the reader to identify with one sort of story, one kind of headache, for example, um, and then uh, sort of categorize that as either take a chill pill, make an appointment with your doctor, or go to the ER. And, mm -hmm. and, and every symptom, we have scenarios that fit into one of those three categories. Okay, well, we're going to cover uh, some of these uh, eventualities. Of course, there are many more in the book, Am I Dying? What a great title. That's a real grabber. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, it answers a very uh, fundamental question. Uh, patients are, are worried, uh, it, appropriately so, because, you know, for every uh, seemingly unfounded fear, there's always a, a kernel of truth uh, to yep. the proposition that, uh, you know, that little spot on your skin uh, could be a portent of uh, a horrible death, uh, you know, with a specter of melanoma, you know, some little darkening or discoloration on the skin. 
uh, and everyone I think has has heard the stories, as you say. Uh, so one of the categories, and you know, I'll just go through some of the categories that uh, you know I often hear about, because uh, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, I could retitle uh, my radio program, which is called Intelligent Medicine. Uh, Am I dying? <laughs> because, and we wouldn't sue you if you did, right? Well, you might have a right to. <laughs> Excuse me, <laughs> but um, people do call up for reassurance. You know, they'll say, "Well, I have this or I have that." Uh, so the other day, a guy called me up, and I'll just give you a real life instance. Uh, he called me up and he said, uh, "You know, I've been to doctors about this, and nobody can figure this out. Uh, I'm 70 years old, and inexplicably, I just seem to be losing weight. Uh, you know, they they." done the tests they don't think that i'm suffering from some form of uh cancer you know obviously that's kind of big on the list you know do you have a pancreatic yeah. cancer or something like that do you have a wasting disease and so that's actually one it, it turns out that corresponds to one of your chapters unexplained weight loss so what do you say yeah. to a person who who approaches you with that yeah so unexplained weight loss um is a pretty common scenario as people get older. It's it's normal uh, as you age uh, and get into your uh, later years, your 70s, your 80s, to to lose some of your body weight. But uh, certainly um, losing, I would say, more than 10 or 15 pounds over the course of two or three months is very concerning. And as you say, when you point out to a doctor that you have unintended weight loss not associated with any diet or increase in exercise, of course, right away, there's a couple things that we think about and want to check for. Uh, cancer, as you mentioned, is a leading cause of unexpected weight loss. Uh, a tumor or a tumor especially that has spread. Could, could that be picked up in a, in a blood test, in a routine blood test? What would, I mean, so for example, come, somebody comes in with weight loss, what kind of blood tests would you run uh, initially? And what on a blood test could raise your suspicion that something yeah. really serious is going on? So what I think most doctors would do right off the bat is check sort of basic what are called electrolytes, the levels of mm -hmm. different salts in your blood, like sodium and potassium, mm -hmm. um, and also check your blood counts, um, like your, your white blood cell count, your red blood cell count. And, and that's like kind of the first sign often that something is wrong. Um, uh, if you are losing a lot of weight and you're malnourished, you may start to see those electrolytes become abnormal. Um, if you have certain cancers, uh, your blood cell counts may become abnormal. We could also check uh, what are called inflammatory markers in your blood, so something called the ESR uh, and something mm -hmm. else called the CRP, which are just kind of like an index of uh, a problem in your body when you have an infection or a cancer, those often become elevated. But is there and a cancer blood test par excellence? Wouldn't it be great because, you know, we, we check for cholesterol. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you know, it be we great? Yeah, you know, just like, do I have cancer? Can we just... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, that? there there really isn't. Um, there are a variety of different blood tests that doctors can use to uh, track cancer. So, for example, mm -hmm. if you're diagnosed with a specific kind of cancer, ovarian cancer, for example, blood tests. You know. Yeah, blood tests that we can can follow to sort of track the effect of treatment. But they haven't really been shown to be good for screening people mm -hmm. uh, for cancer or or diagnosing cancer in the absence sort of an, of another sign. That's kind of the so holy grail of lab science, so the, the, you know, the, yeah. the continual quest for some screening <laughs> exactly. test, which could provide an early warning that something very serious is going on. Yeah, I would say that if, if you come to a doctor with significant weight loss, especially if you're over the age of 50, uh, you've essentially bought yourself a, a scan of your body, though. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, most so they have doctors to do some imaging. Do, yeah, yeah going to do a CAT scan of your chest and your abdomen and pelvis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. looking for tumors or, or anything that just seems off. Mm -hmm. um, and 
if all of that comes back negative, um, some other things that they might look for besides cancer are infections. Mm -hmm. So um, certain infections, like for example, a, a heart valve infection uh, mm -hmm. that's uh, sort of slowly progressive, mm -hmm can cause very subtle symptoms, um, some weight loss, sometimes like night sweats, mm -hmm. um, low-grade fevers. So your doctor might, you know, check your blood uh, to see if it, any bacteria grow out of it. They may do a scan of your heart. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just make sure that there's no cancer, there's no infection, because those are things that can, you know, progress very quickly and mm -hmm. uh, obviously have very severe consequences. Right, so they, they take priority in the in the checking out. Uh, yeah. So in other words, uh, you know, I think, um, and this is actually <laughs> kind of the basis of a lot of, unfortunately, malpractice suits, is doctors who tend to be dismissive of symptoms like that. They say, well, you know, you're older, uh, you're losing weight. Uh, yeah. That happens normally. There's something called sarcopenia. Uh, let's not yeah. worry about it. Six weeks later, the patient's coughing up blood. Uh, or, yeah. you know, has a intestinal obstruction and uh, we're off to the races and see you in court. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's all a question of the degree and the context in which it happens, right? I mean, you may as a doctor notice patients, um, you know, losing a few pounds over the years, but honestly, like, I think most doctors, hopefully, if a patient comes to them with weight loss that they've noticed, mm -hmm. um, will take a pretty thorough history and, and do some initial workup to try to figure out if there's an underlying cause. And, you know, I, I mentioned these things that are pretty scary sounding like cancer and infection. If you're losing tons of weight, the probability that you have one of those is, is substantial. If it's a less severe amount of weight loss, those things have to be looked at, but most likely some other explanation is going to be found. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot, you know, if you have more diarrhea, mm -hmm. um, it could be a problem with absorbing nutrients. Um, if you're feeling hot all the time and um, maybe even have a tremor, uh, you could have high thyroid function, like an overactive mm -hmm. thyroid. Yeah, that's a good know, point. Heating yeah. up your metabolism. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and, and so, you know, the book goes through all these different scenarios and, and many more and just tries to find, you know, in medicine we look for patterns all the mm -hmm. time. Like mm -hmm. you have weight loss, what else do you have? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. kind of presents all the patterns that doctors think about and hopefully a reader with this problem will recognize their pattern and say like, haha, this is you know, the thing that is most likely, uh, and uh, I should probably see someone about that. Well, you know, they, they've talked about uh, uh, patient analysis via uh, algorithms or using machine learning or AI or something mm -hmm. like that to help doctors make decisions around situations like this. But uh, how much of this uh, occurs almost by instinct? You see a patient and uh, at one level, you seem reassured because it just doesn't seem like anything very dire is going on. But sometimes it just doesn't feel right, and that makes you yeah. pursue the workup more aggressively. Isn't that something that you acquire after a while as an experienced clinician? Absolutely. I mean, most uh, medical students learn that the most important skill they'll pick up in med school and residency is uh, being able to identify sick versus not sick. Hmm. And when you first hear that expression, you think that sounds so obvious, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it should be clear who's sick and who isn't. But it actually, it's not even just who's sick and who isn't. It's like who's about to become really sick versus who isn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of that, as you say, relies on some objective measures that artificially intelligent uh, machines could find. But some of it is, as you say, just instinct and how a person looks and how they're acting and whether their behavior has changed a little bit or their just general glow has come off and... You know, so, so that sort of requires one to have a relationship with the patient and uh, be paying attention when they talk to you. 
Okay, here's a, here's another big one, and you know, especially as patients uh, enter middle age, uh, get a little older, uh, yeah. forgetfulness, and you actually have a section on that subject of forgetfulness. You know, some people say, you know, I the other day I just I couldn't find my uh, iPhone. I just completely blanked out on it, and I noticed yeah. that I misplaced my car keys more frequently now. Uh, yep. What's happening to me? Am I going to get Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. So forgetfulness is a pretty much ubiquitous symptom. Uh, all of us have it. I have it. Um, and, um, and, it, and it's fair for people to worry about it because Alzheimer's disease is so well known by the general public and the potentially devastating, um, end stage of Alzheimer's, uh, is well known. And to many the people have been caregivers or they've experienced that yeah. in their family. So that's sort of deeply imprinted in their consciousness. So, so people are, are right to be afraid. Um, you know, that they could be on the road to something like that. Um, you know, I would say forgetfulness, like weight loss, a, a certain amount of it is sort of associated with the normal process of aging. Um, but when people should become concerned is when, one, the forgetfulness be- occurs to such an extent that it's interfering with their everyday life. Like they... It's not just you you know, can't remember where you put your keys every now and then, but you're really it's getting to the point where your forgetfulness is preventing you from uh, functioning at your normal level. Um, or two, when the forgetfulness is associated with some other symptom, whether it's a headache, um, whether it's with confusion, um, whether it's with um, a change in your sleep pattern, you know, in in those cases, then the forgetfulness could potentially be a sign of uh, a sort of acute process that that needs to be dealt with. Is there any truth to the dictum that the forgetfulness is more problematic when other people are noticing it and you're not noticing it? I mean, this is something I've seen sometimes in couples. You know, the the wife, you know, confides in me as the husband is, is getting uh, dressed for their physical exam. He's really not the way he, he used to be. He denies it, but he's he's changed. It's He's forgetting all the time. Uh, yeah. he's getting lost. Uh, and yet when I confront the, the patient himself or herself, they'll say, Oh, no, no, they're exaggerating. Uh, yep. there's an That's element of denial point. sometimes. Uh, not always because some people will say, I really am having a problem. Yeah. So there, there is a general pattern which does not always hold up, but, um, more often than not, one finds that uh, depression, ca- or, I'm sorry, uh, forgetfulness due to Alzheimer's disease, often the person affected by it does not really call attention to it or think it's a big deal. Whereas forgetfulness due to depression, um, due to other medical conditions, um, often the person suffering from it does call more attention mm-hmm. to it. And um, So there's that differential, I, I that, you know, say, when the person's experiencing memory problems, it could be not uh, an inevitable path towards uh, complete... Right. Uh, 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 any kind of uh, mental loss of mental yep. capacity could be uh, a, dep- a transient depression. Absolutely. So, so I, I wouldn't say that you know whether the forgetfulness is noticed by the uh, patient themselves or by a caregiver. You know, you're going to do the full workup either way. But, um, but yeah, what you what you pointed out before uh, definitely is noticed sometimes. And so yeah, so the the various medical conditions that can cause forgetfulness, depression is is certainly high on the list, and it's under recognized and underdiagnosed. Um, but sometimes forgetfulness is the first presentation, the first presenting symptom of depression, especially among older adults. And so it's something uh, one always needs to think about as a doctor and as a caregiver. 
Um, some other things, you know, they, they run the range from the sort of benign to the more serious um, sleep disturbances. So yep. if you're... You know, sleep pattern has sort of fallen apart for whatever reason. Um, getting inadequate sleep will definitely increase your forgetfulness. So will an increase in stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on what's going on in your life, um, if your anxiety is high and your your sleep is low, that may cause you to become mm-hmm. more forgetful. Um, other things like we spoke earlier um, about the thyroid. Uh, so if your thyroid gland is too low. So uh, mm-hmm. you're feeling tired, certain mental dullness. all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That can cause some mental dullness. Mm-hmm. Um, if you uh, had heart surgery recently, um, oh. that can cause some some forgetfulness. Or, or, or chemo brain from chemotherapy, you know, something like chemotherapy that. Chemotherapy is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so those uh, are all menopause, think even about. menopause, I think, can you know, in some instances, can cause women to really feel. Uh, you sort of mentally slow down. So yep. there, there are a variety of uh, possible uh, options other than the most dire one, which is that you're developing uh, uh, low body dementia or Alzheimer's. Yep. So, I mean, I guess uh, as somebody listens to this and they say to themselves, well, I'm, I'm forgetful sometimes, should I see a doctor? The advice, like I said, that I generally give is if you feel like it's really interfering with your mm-hmm. life, um, then you should probably make an appointment um, specifically to discuss that issue. If you're having other symptoms that are also new, you should make an appointment to talk about all of those. Mm-hmm. And if it's not meeting either of those things, it's still something worth bringing up with your doctor. Um, you know, there's certain tests and things we can do to suss out whether the forgetfulness is, is severe or not. How uh, sensitive are those tests, though? Because, again, as with cancer, there's not a, you know, a definitive blood test for Alzheimer's, yeah. unfortunately, or a quick scan that will say, oh, you're, this is definitely an Alzheimer's brain. Um, yeah. Is there a way of uh, making that cut more accurately and earlier? They're not perfect, um, but they're what we have, um, mm-hmm. and they're definitely... Um, helpful because if they're abnormal, um, you know, you, you perform lower than expected. Like on the, the MOCA test, test I think, is one of them. Exactly. Yeah. The minty metal status exam and the MOCA, yeah, and mm-hmm. others. So they're a good start. Um, if, they're, if they're normal at the time, another thing that you can do with those tests is track them over time so you can repeat them every couple of months and mm-hmm. see if they're trending in the wrong direction or mm-hmm. if they're stable. And mm-hmm. it's just kind of like an objective piece of evidence mm-hmm. um, to provide either reassurance or prompt a workup. Um, and there, there are a variety of blood and imaging tests that are under development and under research for Alzheimer's um, to identify people either with the diagnosis or at high risk of the diagnosis. There's genetic tests also that can predict your lifetime risk. Um, I wouldn't say those have entered wide clinical practice just yet, but if you have a strong family history or if your forgetfulness is really becoming a problem, uh, it's something that you could ask a neurologist about. That's a for the listeners, the doctor who specializes in the brain and nervous system. Okay. And particularly at uh, the Columbia University Irving Medical Center, because they actually have a very fine uh, neurology uh, department there. It's uh, one of the top uh, departments in the country. Um, And the head of our neurology department specializes in Alzheimer's and dementia. So it's a great uh, place to get evaluated. Good stuff. Also, they they actually do a lot of good work uh, in in, uh, Lyme disease. And and by yep. the way, that's that is one of the the stranger manifestations of memory loss or dementia is individuals who, uh, unbeknownst to them, have acquired Lyme disease, and uh, in yep. it, it's not all that common, but in certain instances, 
uh, Lyme disease can mimic uh, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease or, an, or other neurodegenerative conditions. It's very, very can mimic almost insidious, anything. It seems. Very insidious. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Good stuff, uh, Chris Kelly. Uh, Chris Kelly, MD, is our guest. He is co-author with uh, Dr. Mark Eisenberg of a great book. Am I dying? Should you chill out or freak out? A complete guide to your symptoms and what to do next. Uh, we'll be back with more in part two. Uh, and cover uh, some more common uh, conundrums, uh, symptoms that uh, could mean uh, the end game scenario for you uh, or could be rather innocuous. It all depends. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.